Let's just pause again and let's just come before the Lord and let's just ask for his help. We really need him as we come to open his word to understand it. So let's pray. Lord our God, your Holy Spirit inspired every single digit that we find here in our Bibles. And we praise you, Lord, for the way that it's been preserved across the many centuries. Thank you, Lord, that we can open up this 2,000-year-old chapter and have fresh, relevant insights to our lives. But, Lord, we need you to make it live and to make it speak to our hearts and our needs. So we pray that you would do that now. Help me, Lord, to speak. Help us all to hear what you would say. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2001, a much-awaited book shot to the top of the book charts. It was written by Jim Collins. The book was titled, From Good to Great. It was the fruit of five years' effort. Collins had painstakingly studied 11 growing companies which had, in his language, made the leap from being just good companies to great companies. And he was looking for the common denominator, the similar traits which had helped each and every one of them to be successful. But one of his findings was somewhat surprising. Though he found many differences between the chief executives of the companies in personality style and in leadership style, he discovered that all of them shared a common characteristic. What was the trait? The trait was humility. These leaders didn't take credit. These leaders didn't seek limelight. These leaders didn't take the high ground over their employees. And this, according to Collins, played a large part in the success of their companies. Because this fragrance of humility permeated down throughout the whole group of people. Now, whether others will pick up on Collins' recommendation for a more humble style of management remains to be seen. Because we do live in a very prideful culture where it's all about asserting ourselves and pushing ourselves forward and upward. But in actual fact, and with all due respect to Colin's research, he really didn't need to spend five years researching to learn that humility is vital for the betterment of any group. Indeed, as far back as the first century, authors were writing of its importance. And in this letter, which we've been studying over recent months, James the author this morning makes such a clarion call to the church about humility. As he continues in his relentless drive to encourage believers in Christ to not just possess any old faith, 
but to have a faith that works itself out in real life. And today he makes clear that one dimension of this faith as it works is humility. Humility which pervades not a business organization, but the church, the body of Christ. And yet, as we will see this morning, I hope, His version of humility is very different from the world's. You see, you can read Jim Collins' book from cover to cover, and you will hear much about humility in relation to people. What Collins omits is any reference to God. And James says, true humility is defined in relationship to God. His key command is, humble yourselves before the Lord. James 4, verse 10. So, I'd like you to consider this with me this morning. What is true humility? Do I have it? Do we as a congregation, as a fellowship, have this fragrance? Would you turn to James chapter 4 again? We're going to... Read the section once more, because the reading of the Word of God has a power in itself. And as we read together, ask yourself the question, what does James mean by humility? We're reading from verse 6. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace... That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, You double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. This morning. Now, other than uh, characters in the Bible, I suppose Jesus being the eminent one, I wonder when you think of humility, uh, whether there's a person, an individual that comes into your mind. You think that person, you know, they're very humble. When I think of uh, humility, I visualize a, a gentleman that I was privileged to know in my previous church. Mr. Brown was his name. He died several years ago, and as it often is with such people, such men, such women, the funeral was a pack-out. And in the tributes, the various 
speakers sought to sum up this widely respected individual. A man who loved his God and his Savior. A man who loved the gospel and shared it with people. A man who loved the church of Christ and served in the church as an elder for many years. A man who loved the community in which he lived for all his days. And a man who loved the Bible. You know, he was always reading and diligently studying the word and sharing insights with you. It wasn't difficult to give a funeral tribute for Mr. Brown. And yet, as I pondered to myself, as I was thinking, what was it about him that warmed so many people from so many walks of life to him? It struck me that his most eminent grace was his humility. He was genuinely self-effacing. He really did think of others as better than himself. Now, I'd like you to think for just a moment. I'm sure there is someone, some Christian, who you know, who models humility for you. Possibly an older person. And when you're with them, there's this lowly fragrance. They're not acting, they're not pretending, but they have genuinely, to use G.I. Packer's quaint phrase, grown downward in humility. Maybe you long that one day, depending on how old you are, in 10 years, 25 years, or 50 years, you might be more like them in that way. But have you ever asked how? How would we get from where we are in our hearts today to there? We know that God longs that we walk humbly with Him. But how do we actually grow downward in humility? And I think James helps us with this this morning. Because he provides us, if I may put it in these terms, with three downward steps to humility. Usually, we want to step up the way to get somewhere. But with humility, we always want to go downwards. So, let's take the first of these downward steps this morning. James begins by helping us to understand that humility is first and foremost a matter of allegiance. James says that the humble man is God's man. He points out that we can't begin to defeat pride. We can't even put a dent in the armor of arrogance till we first submit ourselves in total allegiance to the one true God. That's what he says in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Now, of course, we live in a culture in which that word, submission, is seen as very negative. Submission isn't a popular word in 2006. But what does it mean to be submissive in biblical terms? What does James mean? And it's important to understand that James understands submission as a voluntary choice. It is not something that is forced upon us. The image is not... If you think of it in this way, it's not the bully in the playground, remember at school, who pulls the child's arm up their back, pain shoots through their limb until they submit. It's a different picture of submission here. In fact, the, the image is from the army. 
This word was mainly used in the first century of the Greek military. Yes, it described for sure the fact that the soldier would obey every order of his superior. Because you don't question orders in the army, do you? And yet, as some have pointed out, because of this army context, this was also an enlistment word. In other words, soldiers would voluntarily enlist, knowing full well that from that point forward, they would have to submit to their superior's orders. And you see, that is the dynamic with the Christian. God does not twist our arms up our backs. We willingly give our lives over to him and come under his rule. Now, how do we enlist? How do we become part of that? Notice what James says is involved. Firstly, we acknowledge God's promise. We submit to God because we believe the promise of verse 6. Originally from Proverbs chapter 3, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The fact is, says James, that God only grants blessing. He only bestows grace on the lowly person. He promises that. And so, any thinking person would want to put themselves in that place of blessing. You notice the connection between verses 7 and 6. Submit yourselves then to God. On the basis of the promise, because you know that when you submit yourself, God will pour out his grace upon you. We acknowledge God's promise. Submission also means, verse 7, that we resist God's enemy, too. Resist the devil, says James, and he will flee from you. And this is a natural follow-on from submitting to God. Because if God is your commanding officer... If he is the Lord and he reigns on high, then there is no space to obey anyone else's orders. To follow any other gods. And you see, even as we submit to God, we actively deny any pretender to his throne. We resist him, the devil, meaning to take our stand against him. Like the soldier on the castle wall who parries the strikes of the enemies, who defends his ground until, says James, they flee. It's a wonderful promise, that, isn't it? A reminder that though the devil is powerful, though he is described in Peter as like a roaring lion, he is nevertheless not all-powerful. He is not almighty. He is not God. And he will flee from you. When you resist him, says James. When you say like Jesus did, I worship the Lord alone. Remember the temptation in the wilderness? Satan is trying to wiggle his way into Jesus' allegiance. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But there's just one catch. You need to bow down and worship me. And Jesus makes him flee. He resists him with the scripture. Don't you know? You shall serve the Lord your God and serve him only. That's how you resist the devil. You let him know that you submit to God. That your allegiance will not change. So submission means that we resist the devil. And it also means, thirdly, that we enter God's proximity. It's part of our submission 
It's not as if God is a distant and abstract figure. No, we may actually draw near to him. Wonderful verse, verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It reminds me of reading about Napoleon. You know, the famed military general. Probably one of the greatest military strategists in history. And without question, he had the full allegiance, well, usually, of his troops. And yet his biographers recall that he was, to use modern terms, a people person. It was helped by the fact that he had an excellent memory. And the biographers say he used to walk around the camp where his troops were. And he knew many of them by name. He'd walk up, how are you doing, John? How are you doing, Stephen? And he would ask about their families. He would often know details of their personal situations. You see, he was more than just their commanding officer. He was also someone that they could draw near to. They could know in relationship. And James is saying in an infinitely greater way, God is not only your superior, he is also the one that you can draw near to. Now, in James' sense, this is probably not just coming near at any old time. But the idea is is of being far away from God and returning to Him. Being far away spiritually and coming to Him. Where we can sing from too painful experience, or for a closer walk with Thee. Because if truth be told, we've been far from Him. You think of the parable equivalent of Jesus when he told the story of the prodigal son. One of the main themes of that story is of the delinquent son in the far country turning around and coming back to his father, drawing near to home. And you remember how the story goes, that as he comes back, what does the father do? He runs to his son. And this is a promise of Scripture that as we return to God, as we come to Him, so He comes near to us. Maybe this morning, this sermon is just for one person, just one person who's been far off. And by the way, I don't mean necessarily far from church or far from religious practice, but far from relationship. The trouble is, it's not that you've stopped coming to church, you've stopped coming to God. And this morning, God could give you no more clear, no more compelling promise than this. Come near to me, and I'll come near to you. Also, it could be that you're a Christian and you have the opposite problem. You know, you, you feel kind of close to the Lord. But your God doesn't seem big enough to submit to. There's maybe areas in your life where there's not full allegiance. You're living your own agenda out. There's some area, there's some issue that you are not surrendering to God. And you need to encounter the spectacular greatness of God again. Every now and then I I try to read a book other than the Bible which focuses just on God and nothing else. A book like A.W. Tozer's 
wonderful little book, Knowledge of the Holy. Every chapter is just an attribute of God. And what it does when you read a book like that, it expands your view of who God is afresh. See, if you're not expanding your view of who God is, who He really is, then guess what? Naturally, it shrinks. So we need to come before God, into His presence, see His greatness, submit afresh to Him today. Or maybe this morning you're not a Christian at all. And you need to grasp these two truths, that God is supreme. He needs to be Lord of your life. But he also wants a relationship with you. He's not after a religion. He's after a relationship. So, that's where true humility begins. It's the first downward step. True humility is a matter of allegiance. But that's not all it involves. Because humility, says James, is also a matter of repentance. The humble man is a penitent man. See, if you know your Bible, then maybe you're saying to yourself, well, it's not as simple as this. Simply draw near to God. Because the Bible teaches, does it not, that God is perfect. He is morally pure and holy. And the Bible teaches that we are sinful and we are impure. We've broken God's laws and broken its standards. And so, maybe you say quite rightly, how can I possibly approach a God like that? And the answer is only through repentance. Repentance, the biblical word for turning from your wrong actions and attitudes towards God. And if that is to happen, this might sound a little basic. James says, we must firstly understand that we need to repent. We need to repent. Early in the 20th century, a question was posed in the Times newspaper. The question was, what is wrong with the world? Perhaps they were looking for some very profound answer. Well, they got one. Someone wrote into the paper and said, dear sir, I am. J.K. Chesterton. James wants his readers to see that the problems in their world begin with them and in them. The sin that is in their hearts and in their lives. They are the problem. Look at how he addresses them so strongly in verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded And if you back up to verse 4, he calls them adulterous people because of their friendship with the world. And bear in mind here that he is speaking to Christians. That's something worth pondering, isn't it? One of the great errors that we can make, that Christians can make, is to think that repentance is a once-for-all thing. You repent at the point of your conversion and it's done. Of course, Our initial conversion is a very important turnaround. And if you're not a Christian, you urgently need to do that this morning. But please understand, if you are a believer, that that is not the end of sin, and it is certainly not the end of repentance. The penalty of sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross, but nevertheless, in the Christian, sin is dethroned, but it is not destroyed, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Not until the return of Christ. And that is why every Christian must regularly make a habit of confession to God. And it also explains the fact why some Christians can fall into even gross sin. It seems to have been the case here. To, to really fall into the patterns of the world. We, we don't know exactly what the situation was in the churches to whom James was writing. Certainly, in terms of their speech, they were very like the world around them. And James says, Christian or no Christian, I want you to face up to the fact that there is sin in your life that must be dealt with. And what you need to do is comprehensively repent. Inwardly and outwardly. See, often people restrict repentance to one or other of these aspects when it's both and. See, on the one hand, there must be an inward response. An outward response. James says in verse 8, wash your hands. Now, he's not referring to personal hygiene, folks. Okay, this has nothing to do with physical cleanliness. It's a way of saying, change your behavior. Just as you wash dirt off your hands, so you must rid yourself of all moral filth, which he commanded them to do in chapter 1, verse 21. Wash your hands, he says, of all that filthy stuff. Hands representing the things that you do. Do something about it. Let me ask you this morning, to Christians, is there moral filth in your life that you need to deal with? Is there something that is just filthy that maybe others don't know about, maybe they do, that you need to wash your hands of? There is no doubt about it that if we are to grow downward in humility, we must weed up all the bad stuff that is there in the soil. And the fact of the matter is that some of us perhaps feel sorry again and again over particular sins, but the question is, what are you doing about it? Is there practical action in some respect? But then there's also the other side to this. There's the outward response. There's also an inward response in repentance too. Repentance is not a mechanical act. If you've been persisting in some sin or other which you know to be wrong, it's not just a case of Simply stop doing it and not feel anything. I mean, just think of the Pharisees. They had cleaned up their act outwardly very well. And yet remember how Jesus spoke of them. He called them unwashed cups. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. And he called them sons of hell. Because while their hands, their deeds were fairly clean, unfortunately, their hearts were filthy and far from God. That's why James says in verse 8, purify your hearts. Something has to go on in the heart. Something has to happen in the affections as well as in the actions. Indeed, it's the strongest emotional language, is it not? It is funeral language, really. Now, you'll be glad in this church that we don't preach just phrase by phrase. Maybe you'll be coming along this week and you'll be getting a three-point sermon, grieve, mourn, and wail. And then you'd come back next week and you'd get a two-point sermon, 
uh, which would be change your laughter to mourning, change your joy to gloom. But actually, it might not be a bad thing. Now, let's be clear what James is not saying. He's not saying that Christians shouldn't laugh. He's not saying that Christians should never be happy or enjoy themselves. Indeed, when you read the rest of the letter, you find that James is extremely in to Christian joy. You remember what he said back in chapter 1. He said that Christians are to endure trials, and when they do this, they are to consider it pure joy. So James is radically into joy. But what James is saying is that there may come a time in the Christian's life where they have strayed so far from God, they have become so callous about their sin that what they really need to do is have a good time of mourning. That it would be better for them to grieve for a little while rather than sing another superficial song. Sometimes a little grieving needs to happen. This is how we should feel as we recognize in our hearts the profound wrong that our sin is, the offense that it is to God. So let me say, those, those times in your life when you feel bad about sin, as a, as a Christian, don't resist them. It's a good thing. Here's what's bad. What is bad is when we persist in a sin that we know to be wrong and we don't feel a thing. When we're just numb to it. Sin has become so ingrained we feel little or nothing. That's a dangerous place to be. And if that's you, you need to pray that God will break your heart over your sin. Repentance is not a simple thing. Peter Granger was speaking at the Greenhouse Leadership course the other week. That struck me what you said, Peter. He said, repentance is it's not easy. It's not simple. You don't just get up in the morning and say, I'm going to repent today. You don't casually go to a funeral either. We need this inward change. In attitude, we need this outward change. In action, that's biblical repentance. And we turn, not only from our sin, but we turn, the rest of the New Testament is clear, to Christ. We depend on Him. We trust in Him for mercy and forgiveness because He died on the cross for our sins to bear the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. And remember as we do this, again, remember, as James underlines now, that this repentance is ultimately towards God. We need to repent towards Him. That's why he comes back in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It's important to remember that when we turn from sin. Forget about other people and what they think. How often does it happen? Perhaps, maybe it's fairly rare when a sermon or something, something else brings up a real feeling of conviction of sin in our hearts. How often do we just hold that back? Hold that in because there's other people around. What will they think? I mean, would it be such a travesty to give in to the conviction of God's word? We're doing the chit-chat at the end of the service. Lots of other people folks can talk to. 
You need 10 minutes with the Lord. Are we serious about this, folks? Serious about sin? Serious about repenting? God says be serious because when you do, I've got this wonderful promise for you. I'll lift you up. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. There is not a man, woman or child on the face of the earth who genuinely falls on their face before God that He leaves there. God doesn't do that. In His mercy, because of the shed blood of His Son, He will lift you up. From sinking sand He lifted me, from ten, with tender hand He lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light, oh praise his name, he lifted me. But you've got to get down first. Remember the tax collector? Pharisee and Luke 18. Both of them go up to the temple to pray, to do some business with God. And the Pharisee, he thinks he's got it all together. He's puffed up with pride. He prays loudly so everyone can hear how great he is. And there's no contrition, there's no repentance in his heart. And then there's the tax collector. He can't even look up to heaven. He feels so low. And he's not thinking about what anyone else thinks of him. He's just one to one with God. And through tears probably, he prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes the story by saying that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified. Who are we going to be? The Pharisee or the tax collector? True humility takes the way of repentance. So it involves allegiance. Secondly, repentance. But there's a third thing that it involves as well. A third step downward. And this is perhaps the hardest thing that humility involves because it involves the tongue. And that is deference. The humble man stops trying to be God. The humble woman stops trying to take God's place. As that is expressed in the way that we sometimes speak about each other. Harmfully, critically. The humble person is careful with their words because they know that they live in view of God. Now, as we come to verse 11, we see that it is words which are the immediate issue. Indeed, the particular use of words, it's called slander. James can be any more straightforward than he is in verse 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. And he's returning again to this familiar theme that keeps cropping up in the letter, how we speak. Evidently, the churches to whom James is writing have a problem with this. Which, by the way, again, is interesting because you can be a church which is good in what you do, but be corrupted by what you say. It can be the downfall of a church. And so James goes to great lengths on this issue. He's spoken of the godly use of the tongue in prayer and in praise and in encouraging. And yet more often he's spoken of its negative use. Warning people against thoughtless speech, boasting, grumbling, and later on swearing. But here he addresses slander. And you know, slander in the first century really wasn't that different from in the 21st century. 
When people spend millions of pounds over liable in this matter. In James' time, slander meant to defame someone, to discredit them, to even destroy their reputation by critical speech. It really is speech which has the sole intent of harming the reputation of someone else. That word intent is really important. Because James is not saying that we can never speak about another Christian under any circumstance. He's not contradicting Jesus' provision that one Christian can point out a fault to another Christian if he does it in love. And indeed, James would have broken his own command many times if that were the case because he has some very strong words to say to these folks. Why, he's even judging their judgments. The difference is the intent. See, when James uses hard words, it is with the intent of bringing constructive criticism to the aid of his brothers and sisters in Christ, to benefit them. Now, let me pause for just a moment and ask you this question. Have you shared information with some person this week, either in work or in family or in church, which has really not been constructive criticism, where the end result has really only been negative, which didn't benefit Mr. X that you were speaking about at all. If so, that was probably slander. And you see, the problem with this, it's not just only that it harms people's reputations, which is the reason people get the payouts in court, but James actually points to an even more profound reason that this is so wrong. Because if we slander, follow James' logic, it's it's really inescapable. He says, firstly, if we slander, then you are judging your brother. Now, remember again, he's speaking of slandering Christians here. If you slander a fellow believer, think about it, you're judging your brother. No less than three times in verse 11, in the original version, James calls them brothers. And in verse 12, he calls them neighbors. Now, he's made the transition. He was calling them sinners a few minutes ago. He was calling them double-minded. And now he changes his tone because he wants them to get the point. That when they defame other Christians with their tongue, they are harming their own flesh and blood. Those of us who are siblings, uh, who grew up with brothers and sisters, uh, know this tone well, don't we? So you're fighting with your brother or sister, or you're calling them names, and uh, dad comes along, or mum, maybe even more scary, and uh, she says, don't talk to them like that. That's your brother. That's your sister you just spoke to. Remember who you're talking to. And so when we are ready to splurge, remember what your Father in heaven says. That's your brother. That's your sister in Christ. Slander means that we judge our brothers and sisters, but it also means, James takes it forward, that we are judging the law. Verse 11. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law 
and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. This is a slightly hard phrase to get your head around. I think what James has in view here is the fact that slander is something which is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law. It is also something which violates Jesus' command in the New Testament to love your neighbor, to love your brother and sister. And therefore, when we slander our brother, we are not only speaking out against them as an individual, we are also speaking out, in a sense, against the law. We're really saying to the law, we don't like you. We don't appreciate your direction, your command to love our neighbor. We don't need to obey that. And therefore, in our attempts to put others in their place, we become sort of vigilantes who break the law ourselves. Do you remember those two men in Dunfermline, I think it was last year, who attacked a man? This gentleman that they attacked, he had himself committed a crime and they wanted to mete out justice and judgment on him. They actually murdered the man. They killed him. And they themselves were put in prison for their crime. Now, maybe the, maybe the victim was guilty of a crime, but nevertheless, they broke the law themselves. Do you see? And you see, this is James' ultimate point. That is why I've put as this heading, deference. Because slander is ultimately a matter of stepping into a territory that we don't own. Into a realm of judgment that doesn't belong to us, but to God. And the truth is that when we slander, ultimately we are judging the judge himself. We are elbowing in, as it were, on the unique right of God himself to be the final authority. There is, says James, verse 12, only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. There's no space for two people on the judgment bench. Especially, says James, you. And James isn't being cheeky when he says at the end of the verse, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He's just being realistic. Do you really think, he says, that you have a place up there next to God? Do you have the power to save and to judge? To save to the uttermost those that come to him through Jesus? Can you do that? Have you got the power to cast both soul and body into hell? Then stop your tongue. Silence your mouth. Friends, that sense of deference, that throne vision has got to grip us before we open our mouths to speak about people. Am I speaking about people in such a way that I am playing God in effect? Am I breaking the law of love as I speak about people? Am I remembering at all times that that's my brother and that's my sister? May God impress these truths not only onto our hearts, but onto our lips. So that what comes out of our mouth will be blessing, not cursing. And if criticism, for the good of others. See, this is what true humility involves. Giving full allegiance to God. Turning to God in repentance. 
in action and in attitude. Casting ourselves, whether Christian or unbeliever, on the mercy of God in Christ. And for the rest of our days, a loving deference in matters of judgment, ultimately to God. See, think again of that person that you admire for their lowliness. I'll almost guarantee that they have these three things nailed down. Allegiance to God, repentance towards God, and deference to God. These are the three steps downward to humility. And ultimately, it's about, in all these cases, coming before God. That's where humility starts. Calvin, the reformer, said it like this. No man attains a true self-knowledge until he first comes into the presence of God. Do you want to be more humble? Go downward in humility? Approach God. And as you get closer, you'll feel smaller. You know, when you stand up close to a really huge mountain, you feel tiny. Draw near to God. And as you stand beneath His infinite majesty, it will not be long before you bow your knee. Let's pray.